Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Christoph Keller III, an Episcopal priest and theologian who, through his ministry and life, has blended scholarly pursuits with pop culture knowledge in an innovative leadership style. As a young man, Chris Keller could do anything. Having grown up the son of two well-read parents, he has their intelligence and eagerness to learn. His father, the late Chris Keller, was the Episcopal Bishop of Arkansas from 1967 to 81 and a desegregation leader in the Deep South. His late mother never wanted for love or money, having been born Carolyn Murphy of Murphy Oil. So what makes a man like Dr. Chris Keller work hard and strive? He doesn't have to. He has family stability, above-average intelligence, and the love of many doting sisters. But strife he did and still does. At an early age, Chris showed promise and becomes the class president of Little Rock's famed Central High School, where he organized the first soccer league in Central Arkansas. Following high school, he attended Amherst College and majored in American Studies, where his thesis titled, Bussing, awarded him the top prize for an American Studies. For a master's degree, young Chris was Harvard-bound when a persistent calling to become a priest began to creep into his subconscious. Acting on the call, he enrolled across the street in the Episcopal Divinity School. Upon returning to Little Rock, some got to know the now Father Keller as the founding priest of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church on Chennault Parkway in Little Rock, Arkansas. But the ever-learning Dr. Keller was once again restless for more education. In 1999, he would move his family to New York City to begin his advanced study in theology. Dr. Keller holds a Doctor of Theology, a Th.D., in Anglican Studies with a focus on theology and science. Listen to the name of his dissertation. Darwin's Science in Chalcedonian Imagination, Barth, Double Agency, and Theistic Evolution. This paper explores and affirms the compatibility between Christian faith and evolution. Talk about a tough topic. I got to know Dr. Keller when he was called to be the Dean of Trinity Episcopal Church in downtown Little Rock. Since his retirement from that job... In true Chris Keller mania, if you will, he has written an important book titled Getting On Toward Home, a collection of 12 of his, I suppose, favorite funeral sermons. This book, with its meaning of life and celebration of death, will be our main topic of conversation today. It is an honor to welcome to the table one of the smartest guys I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, my friend, and like E.F. Hutton, when Chris speaks, people listen. The Reverend Dr. Chris Keller III. What? <laughs> <laughs> All true. Uh, no, I, I've never been introduced quite so exuberantly before. <laughs> the accuracy is not 100%. But oh, it's, it's not right. <laughs> my sister's never once doted on me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> And there, there are a few other things, but it's all right. It's close enough to rock and roll. Is your mother Polly? Was your mother called Polly? They were called. She called. She, her name was Caroline legally, but she was always called Polly. I'm glad you chose a simpler title for your book, Getting On Toward Hope, than your earlier writing. Than your earlier writings, Darwin's Science and Chalcedonian Imagination, Barth Double Agency and Theistic Evolution. Remind me to never read that paper. <laughs> In reading your book, your father's eulogy and your mother's homily were both included. And there's a difference. Tell us what the difference between a eulogy and a homily is. So neither of them is a eulogy. No, they're both homilies. They're both homilies. Uh, a eulogy is, uh, the Greek root is, essentially it means it's praise. And it's so a, a eulogy, which is a good thing, is uh, is uh, kind of a parting 
message of praise for the person who's deceased. And um, the homily is a sermon. It's a short sermon where the point is to draw the person's life into um, the understanding of that person's life that we have in our, through our faith. So you're seeing the person in light of the, of the larger truth about the world and God. And so the homily is supposed to preach. I got you. That's why we call sermons homilies. And a eulogy is about celebrating, praising just that person pretty much. You're not trying to teach them something about the Bible while you're giving them a eulogy. Right. And kind of a brief history of speaking at funerals in the Episcopal Church. When I was born, the practice was nothing was said about the person who had died. Really? The basis for it, in a way, is beautiful, which is that we're all equal in the eyes of God. And none of us really can accurately summarize another person that's for God to know and for us to find out. And so whether you're the queen of England or the person that sweeps the floor in in the pub down the street, you're treated the same at a funeral. Now, theoretically, that was the way it was. And so parish priests generally just didn't preach at at, uh, funeral services, and neither did any member of their family. That was kind of hard for people to bear. And so by the, just about the time that I became a priest, there was a new prayer book, and it, it actually offered an opportunity for the first time for there to be a homily at a funeral service. And um, so people kind of had to figure out how to use that time. A lot of times I've noticed they tended to be almost impersonal. I mean, the preacher would preach the resurrection. It seemed to me that you always needed to bring the person's life into I, that. Yeah, I don't like funerals like that. They yeah. did that for my grandmother's funeral, and I was like, well, we can even talk about grandma. Yeah, and I, I think that pastorally, even when I was young, I recognized that there needs it needs to be more personal than that. I think probably as a reaction to that, people more and more started, in addition to having sermons, would have you know, tributes from family members at services to, to, to make it personal. And I think that's, I've heard some really good ones. More often in my experience, I've not, uh, if somebody asks when we have a member of our family do a tribute, the answer has always been yes, just one, please. So mm-hmm. the service isn't too long. Mm-hmm. But more often they don't. And so I get people that, even if I don't know the person that I'm about to talk about, I'll, I'll get to know them in about in the three days before the service. Oh, is that how long it takes? Three yeah. days of interviewing the family? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it takes three days to actually have the service. And so I'll get the people in the family to talk to me about their loved one. And then I'll give their loved one back to them and wrapped up in the gospel. Mm-hmm. In the homily. Oh. But then there are other people that I've known all my life. And so I don't have to ask. Well, now you got the internet. You can just go online and Google up the person and go, Hey, look at what all they did. You, you sure can. You get it. Yeah, you could. Your father was a second generation preacher. Third. You are the fourth preacher in your family. Mm-hmm. No preach, no pressure to your son. Well, there was no pressure on me. Literally, seriously, there wasn't. And uh, my son, who's a practicing attorney, would say there was no pressure on him. Except for you know he's got to feel it back in the back of his brain. Well, that's between him and God. Spoken like a true preacher. All right, before we get into the nuts and bolts of your book and why it was important for you to write it, I want to tell our listeners. I interviewed you the first time in January of 2018 when you were sitting dean of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral. And in that interview, we talked about your family, which we just talked about. We talked about your opinion on gay marriage and your aforementioned thesis paper of how science and Christianity are compatible. And I don't want to belabor those topics again, but I do want to tell everybody it was a great interview fact i've had people tell me it's their favorite interview of all the 200 i've done it was really obviously you're well spoken and you have deep thoughts but i do want to very briefly give our new listeners some insight into the depth of your thinking you and your father have always been champions of civil rights movement why was that social issue been important to your family well just happened that my father was the dean of saint andrew's cathedral in jackson mississippi from 1961 to 1967, which was when the civil rights movement gathered enough steam to make the changes needed that were difficult to make that had to be made in in the South. So there was no way not to take a stand uh, where he was. And, you know, and something as basic as are the doors of our church open to 
all people of any color was a controversial stand to take in Jackson, Mississippi in 1961. And um, there were, uh, there was a, a church, it's called a church visit movement that was organized in the way that freedom rides were in Jackson. And um, it was right after Medgar Evers, the, who was, I think, the president of the Mississippi NAACP, was murdered in Jackson, uh, that uh, four women who had tried at other churches in Jackson to be to, to go to church on Sunday morning and been turned away. They uh, came to St. Andrews, and they were welcomed. And um, so just by doing the essentially Christian thing of recognizing that red, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight, that got my father in the New York Times. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Front page of the New York Times, I bet. Yeah, I think it was the front page. And um, so... He was just standing there doing the right thing and attracted some attention. For your Ph.D. thesis, you wrote how science and Christianity can exist together. Very, I know this is a big topic, but very quickly, tell us how you came to that conclusion. Well, the Christian faith was ready for a science which was able to explain the origin of species uh, in a natural way, because um, it has, it, from back into ancient times, it had understood that when, that when we talk about God as creator of the world, we're not talking about God as an agent, one among other creative things in the world, but as the creator of the whole shebang. So God is, now it's true that God is a doer in the world, but God is the doer of the world. And so Thomas Aquinas, drawing from Aristotle, referred to God as the primary cause of events in the world in in the same way that the author of a novel is the primary cause of events that happen within the novel. If you're inside the novel and you're living in it, you're not seeing, if you're a Harry Potter Potter novel, you're not not seeing J.K. Rowling anywhere. You're just you're doing stuff because it makes sense to do or, 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 that, or that happens within the, co- the context of the book. Well, Thomas Aquinas, who didn't know anything about Charles Darwin, knew that God is that way in this world. The first part of the Summa Theologiae, he says, does God exist? Well, Aquinas always started with objections to whatever position he was going to take. Says, well, it seems that God does not exist because, number one, there's too much evil in the world, and if God exists, God is a God worthy of the name, then God is good. So the evil in the world, the things that happen that are terrible, those contradict the idea of God. And it seems like we don't need God for an explanation because for almost everything we have a natural explanation. So he starts with those two objections, and then he goes on to, to answer the objections. And the answer to the objection, well, we don't really need God as an explanation. He says, well, actually we do. We don't need God as an explanation for this, that, or the other thing that happens within the world, but we needed an explanation for the world as a whole and for certain ways in which the world makes sense. Uh, that with, without God, we can't really explain that. So God is like to this world in which species evolved, is like J.K. Rowling to the world of Harry Potter, and Christianity knew that before Darwin ever presented the problem. Well said. And last, before we go to break and come back and talk about your book, an even tougher subject than race relations or Christianity and science, it's going to be gay marriage in the church. You, at one time, Episcopalians were quick to come to the party, but you were a little slow getting there. Tell us how you decided that it was right and holy. Yeah, I, I, I probably am uh, instinctively conservative about everything in the sense that you know, if somebody was going to propose a change that I'm going to say, well, you know, tell me more about that. So I've always been a cautious conservative about virtually everything. So I grew up into a world in which marriage was between men and women and, and actually the norm for sexual relations that I was taught was it was right if it was between men and women, and it was wrong if it was any other combination. Um, and so that was the, that was kind of the given into the world and the church that I came into. But I was always taught to be an open-minded conservative. 
And I was also always taught that we see change happen within the Bible. The Bible is not is not static itself, and there are major controversies in the early church where significant changes to the to the practices of what it meant to be a faithful person were introduced within Christianity and considered and debated. And you could see that God had empowered the church to to take up the question of change and to resolve it. That's part of what it means to be a human being is to uh, is to consider new information and to uh, reckon with it, work with it. So in the early 80s, the Episcopal Church was considering resolutions at the General Convention, which meets every three years, uh, pertaining to homosexuality. And uh, early on, it was just, it was controversial. This is before I got in it, but uh, my father was active. That, you know, that they passed resolutions that said that the people that have same-sex attraction are in, have an inherent dignity and needed to be respected is having that by the church. So that was kind of the, the first step. Uh, and when I came along, the question was, should clergy in particular abstain from sexual relations outside of marriage? The first time I was ever asked to take a vote on that. And so that's basically reaffirming that, that you should be chaste unless you're married. And the only way you could be married was if you were married to a member of the opposite sex. So my, the the conservative vote that I took at a convention was to say, yeah, we, that we should be that, that we should be chaste. And so that, that was the conservative vote at the time. The next convention, which was three years later, which I was, a, again, a, a deputy, the question was, should the church bless, be willing to bless same-sex unions? And I was a member of the committee there, and that was going to be the most controversial question that we faced. And there was a weekend within the convention, and I was by then the vicar at St. Margaret's Church, and I needed to come back to church, which was brand new, and meeting in a movie theater, and I needed to leave the convention to come back to Little Rock to hold services because it's really important for me not even to miss a Sunday. And on the plane down and back, I just kind of said my prayers on that question, and I came back and I proposed to the committee that what we should do is call for theological study of that issue to present to the next convention, stating um, how the church saw that, why it saw that that we should be open to the considering that question and what we should do about it. In other words, let's have let's the church adopt a we're an open minded we're an open minded church on this for three more years and we're going to study it and they're going to reconsider it the next convention. And the resolution that I proposed to the committee passed the convention. And so three years later, I'd read the results of the study, and frankly, the study that the church produced was not well done. And so I, to me, it, it, didn't, it was not persuasive in any way. It was kind of, well, there's pros and cons, and it just kind of threw the thing up in the air. And I thought, well, okay, well, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to decide myself what I think about this. In true Chris Keller form. And so I took a sabbatical three months leading to the convention and I you know I read as much as I could and didn't do really anything else uh for those three months and I studied you know kind of the science of how, what do we understand about why people are attracted to others of the same sex I mean do we, do we have a definitive answer to that about that um I studied the theology of it uh and you know what uh, understanding of what it is about love that makes it holy what is it about same-sex love that would exclude it from consideration of being considered holy and sacramental. And um, I said my prayers on it. And, uh, you know, a, a very interesting thing happened. About two weeks before the convention, I got a call from a friend of mine who was a priest in Mississippi. His name is Duncan Gray III. He called my office and they said, well, he's on sabbatical. And here's his number. And he called me at home and he said, Chris? are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, Duncan. Why do you ask? He says, because I had a dream about you last night that you were sitting at your desk with a stack of books on your desk and you, you were intensely thinking about something. And I just want to know if you were okay. And <laughs> You're like, well, that's not a dream. That's true. And 
uh, Duncan Gray and I are now good friends. And I'll I, bet. I, I, I see him from time Soul to time. Brothers. And he'll, he'll, he'll affirm that, that 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 happened. And so that was my posture going to the convention. And what I decided was, yeah, when two people love each other, uh, kind of under the terms that we understand for, for, for opposite sex marriage, for traditional marriage, where the, the, they promise to love each other unconditionally, to engage in that give and take, that that love is holy and that the church should bless it. And so that, I mean, that was when I changed my mind. What did you say to Duncan when he called and said that to you? Well, I told him what I was up to. What did he say about that? Well, he was glad that I was thinking about it because he'd been worried about it too. I mean, and and he was, I mean, we're similar people from the same part of the world and we've been raised the same way and we're going to both have to vote on the, that question. I bet nobody has studied it as much as you have. Well, no, there are plenty of people that have studied more. So but I bet there wasn't anybody at that convention that had studied as much as I had. I wish our representative in Congress would study stuff that hard. Well, you know what? If you're, what? If you're, you're right. If you're, if, you're, if you're talking about things that matter, and if you're in the Congress of the United States or the legislature of the state of Arkansas, then you have an obligation to, uh, to, to do the best you can to understand it as well you can say your prayers on it, and, and to offer it up. Because your decision is going to affect a lot of people. And you, that's a good story. All right, this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Christoph Keller III. We will talk about his recently published book titled Getting On Toward Home, a collection of 12 of his funeral sermons. We'll be right back. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy a production of flagandbanner.com. In 2020, Carrie McCoy Enterprises acquired OurCornerMarket.com, an online company specializing in American-made plaques, signage, and memorials for over 20 years, and more recently, opened a satellite office in Miami, Florida, telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Christoph Keller III, who recently published his book, Getting On Toward Home, a collection of some of his favorite funeral homilies and eulogies. Your book is called Getting On Toward Home. Why that title, and why was this book important for you to write? Well, I just retired, and so all my life I had uh, thought that at some point, as a scholar, I should write a book and publish. You know, that's kind of part of the job, and I, I just hadn't ever gotten around to it. So, book writing was on my agenda for retirement, and kind of intuitively started getting drawn to the idea of, of uh, bringing together some funeral sermons. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last ten years is by Reinhold Niebuhr. It's it's about the progressive view of history gotten the title of the book, but he says that there are three things that the progressive movement will never be able to make go away, and one of them is that sex is important to human beings, and another is that race is important to human beings, and the other is that death is important to human beings. So death is important to human beings, and it's important in Christian faith. What Christianity has to say about death is important. And I said a lot about it because I've done a lot of sermons when people have died. And so I, I got, got drawn with that. And so, and I decided I didn't want it to be a big book. I wanted it to be a small one because there's only so many sermons at funerals that I think anybody ought to ever have to consider reading. And so let's make it small. And these aren't necessarily the ones that I think are my best or my favorites. I wondered. It was sort of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle where one thing would lead to another, and I would think, oh, I thought yeah, this kind of connects with something I said about that and another, and I, I just started piecing them together. Ultimately, I just kind of looked at it. Uh, one day I arrived at the, yeah, well, these are the 12, and it's one thing to kind of hold a room in the moment, and it's another thing to hold a room in the pages of a book, and so it's got to be sharper. It's got to be better written. So I had to rewrite them all. I, re- and I, I rewrote them as many times for the book as I'd rewritten them in drafts to do the sermon. So it's usually five drafts for a sermon, and so it's probably 10 or 15 for the book. If I ask you to read something on that exact subject, will you read it? Okay. All right, here. It's the first paragraph in your author's note. Yeah, this is a little book of sermons with one big thing in common. 
someone's death was their occasion. This could go without saying the difference between preaching a funeral and publishing a book is enormous. In these pages, I am not speaking to a room full of mourners that includes a family in the front whose hearts are in their throat. At a funeral or a memorial service, there is power in the room and it reaches to the pulpit. Sometimes I fill a big cup of ice, no water, just ice, and have it in easy reach. So if emotion wells up, I can stop and crunch some ice. Somehow that helps me keep composure, and I don't need ice to write a book. Yep. That's true. That's good. Isn't that good? It's really good. I feel like I've seen you with the cup of ice before, too. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah, like my last sermon at Trinity, I needed ice. Listen, we were all crying. (laughs) I'm going to cry just talking about it, but then I'm a crier. I'm just going to keep a cup of ice around me all the time. I read this quote on the back of your book, and it's what it's the favorite quote that you know how the authors are, you know how they always put a quote on the back of a book, and this one's by Eliza Bournet, and I really liked it. It said, "Christoph Keller III has a literary sensibility, an appreciation for pop culture, and a theologian's intellectual heft." I'm using that word sometimes. Joy and grief coexist in these pages, along with faith and hope, light and sacred meaning. Yeah, when uh, Eliza sent me that blurb, which I appreciated a lot, I was kind of taken aback by the pop culture thing. And then I thought, yeah, I'm busted. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about the Grateful Dead. You talk about Tom Jones. You talk about, uh, yeah, all these sermons. Every sermon has got some sort of pop culture something in it, I realized after I started reading it. So, and then to go on, before we get into each of your chapters and a little bit more about that, in the introduction, you reference your best friend and for whom the book is in memory of, the late Richard Franklin Milwee. You call him a feisty gentleman and splendid friend. That's a pop culture reference. It's an Easter egg in there for people that that are fans of Lonesome Dove. When, When I call him a feisty gentleman, I've already said that his, almost his last words, to me, where he was quoting Augustus McRae's last words in Lonesome Dove to Woodrow Calls. So Richard was a great fan of Lonesome Dove, so by calling him a feisty gentleman, I'm identifying him with Gus, and I, so I just put that in there. So I like this in your, in, he, you don't do his, you do not put his funeral in here, even though you presided, y'all made a promise to each other that whoever went first would do the, the other would do the funeral. Yeah. But he went first, so you did his, but you didn't put it in here. I almost, I mean, I thought I would. And uh, but you know it's just that kind of that editing process just kind of uh, I had to I was going to keep it to twelve. Also had uh, I uh, I also did his daughter's funeral who died of cancer and before she was forty years old. Mm. And um, I was going to do that one, and then that one also just kind of the sifting process just ended me not using. So you did put Milwee in the introduction, and I thought this was really cute little quote you put in here about him. You said about him having to go in, and I didn't know this, but before you become a priest, you have to go through all these psychological evaluation, evalu- psychiatrist. Yes, yeah. you know, and and so you put in here when he's doing his, after a polite, warm tosses the psychiatrist, wound up and threw a curveball. Now, Richard, tell me about your sexual experience. Richard, still single in his early twenties, pondered that and let it hang unanswered. Well, the doctor insisted. Richard, I'm not going to tell you about my sexual experience. And why not, said the psychiatrist, as I imagined him leaning forward on his knees wanting to know. Because I haven't had enough of it to satisfy a Freudian psychiatrist, and I've had too much to suit the church. Don't you wish that one time in your life that you had ever said something that perfect? That was perfect. (laughs) How long does it take to write a sermon, you think? Three days, you mentioned. Well, that year I went to Harvard, the uh, the rule they told us is if you're going to stand up in front of people and talk, it's one hour of preparation for one minute of delivery. What? And uh, I've always thought that that was... uh, the rule that I should follow in preaching, and I, followed, I stuck to it through the years. And actually, the older I got, the more time I'd spend. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'd say 
uh, you know, a Sunday sermon for me on, on for Trinity Cathedral was usually 15 hours. And at funeral sermons, you have less time because, I mean, this, this, these customs have changed some in recent years, but, you know, often you would have three days to mm-hmm. write a funeral sermon. So there you're, I, I, did, I didn't have as much time. So I, I would probably have eight hours. Um, you said the Holy Spirit worked through you to do this. Is that how you stay humble? Or are you humble? How about that? <laughs> the, older, the older I get, the easier it is to be humble. <laughs> That's called forgetful, Chris. That's not humble. <laughs> I talk about that process of painting these pictures. You really, really paint beautiful pictures of people. I was going to, I had so many to read, I couldn't decide on any of them. This one you read about your father. And this is the only time I cried in the book. And I'm a crier. This is the only time I cried in the book. It's you writing about your dad and for his. And this paints a beautiful uh-huh. picture to me that I thought, I wish my kids would do that. No, they will. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> this is going to happen for you, Carrie. I'm opening my ears <laughs> right now. Be easy. I'll probably outlive everybody. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's, that's the truth right there. <laughs> So my father had Alzheimer's disease, and so for eight years, really, he'd been disabled by it. And so it had been a real long time that he could even join us at the table. And so now he's at the point of death, but not – so he's in another room in the house, but we're all gathered because we know the end is there. And we're, we're in a big room, and we're able to, to kind of remember him as he was instead of just dealing with the, the, the stress of the day-to-day. And so – um so we're in the dining room, and this is um, now I'm reading. Table side, we sipped or slurped good wine and gorged on the bayou soul food he adored. He would clean his plate of pork chops fried, field peas, cornbread, and okra fried. He would beg for seconds by evoking Oliver. Please, ma'am, I'd like some more. <laughs> he would hope for dessert. Might there be a tiny scoop of low-fat sherbet? And at that, we would guffaw as he gave a wink and mother rolled her eyes because by sherbet, everybody knew he meant high-fat pie, pecan, honey-cut slice with a scoop or three of ice cream. (laughs) It had been years since he could join us at the table. Now at the end, we began to laugh again and raise our glass to that good man we finally felt permission to remember. Do you want me to explain honey-cut slice? Yeah, what is that? Uh, My wife... It's Julie Honeycutt Keller. And I actually have a footnote for this in the book. But um, in, our, in our family now, if you want a thin and healthy slice of cake, that's called a Keller slice. If you want a big, fat slice of cake, that's a Honeycutt slice. Because when we were young married, and Julie, we were down on the farm, and it was somebody's birthday. I don't remember whose. And there was a caramel cake that was cooking all afternoon. And Julie loves cake, and she particularly loves caramel cake. And at dinner time, she'd been waiting for that cake all day. Now, you radio listeners need to know that my wife, Julie, is about the most beautiful woman you ever saw. Absolutely. So, but she loves cake. And she, um, uh, she's, uh, so this cake comes out that she's been spelling all afternoon. And my mother carves her a little slice, and you could see through it. And Julie goes, um, that's a Keller slice. I'd like a honeycut slice. That's three or four of those. <laughs> and so ever since in our family, honeycut slice is big. Keller slice is healthy and good for your figure. And we don't, we're not interested in that on the honeycut side. <laughs> that's good. That sounds so perfect. Yeah. I know. Well, that's I that's... figured that's what it meant when you said honeycut slice, that it was something big. I didn't know it was in reference to your beautiful wife's portion sizes all right it's time to go on to your book more so okay and i there are 12 chapters i don't know if we want to get into each one of them because look he'll know <laughs> but <laughs> Please <I> don't. <laughs> but the the titles are the name of the person and then or, or the chapters are the name of the person like the first one is charles Irwin, and then you gave it a title getting on toward home when you're doing their homily or their eulogy, do you title your papers at that time, or did you just do it for the book? I did it for the book. It was to, it was to find something to kind of hang your hat on about what this one is about. 
Harry Charles Irwin, the first sermon. I, uh, you know, start by talking about Donald Harrington, the author who, uh, who uh, has this town of Staymore, Arkansas, that's a fictional town, and it, it comes from the um, the practice in the Ozarks. You walk down the road and you eat dinner, and it's and you, when you get you stand up and it's time to go home. The custom is you say, "Well, it's about time for me to get on down home," and they go, "No, no, 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 stay more." And I was in that sermon, just kind of the way that it worked. I, I, I worked towards the conclusion of the sermon of that we want it when somebody we loves, we love dies. It's our nature to hate that, and that nature is actually a good thing. That's a healthy part of, of being human. It's to not want somebody to die. I don't want ourselves to die. Thomas Aquinas taught us that. We, we struggle against death, and that's, that's because we value life. And um, so we want to stay more. But it's also true that through all our lives, whether we know it or not, whether we remember it or not, we're actually on a journey to go back to where we started, which we started in God, and we go back to God. And so it was time to get on Perry to be getting on toward home. That was kind of the natural title for that sermon, and I decided I wanted to make that the title of the book. And that, and that for each chapter, for each sermon, I, I came up with another title that picked up something in that sermon and crystallized it. Gave it a theme for uh, Porter Brown, Catherine Fuller, Porter Brown. Old, I love this when you've referenced Old South Spice as if it was a flavor. I was talking about the flavor that the, where we come from adds to our soul. Because mm-hmm. our soul is, is not something that floats above who we are. It is who we are. It's what we are. Uh, Catherine Porter Brown grew up in the South, deep South, but her daughter had uh, moved and made her life out in Seattle. And so when Dr. Brown and Mrs. Brown got old, they went out to live out there. But they took, they took the South with them when they lived out there. Where she wanted to be brought, her ashes brought back to Oh, Arkansas and her husband the same, but they died a few years apart. They wanted to be buried not in Seattle. Oh, they wanted to be buried in Arkansas. <laughs> they wanted to be buried at the river. So we had the family service at the Arkansas River. I'm not sure we want to do all of them, but this one broke my heart. And you said uh, it's Marilyn Elizabeth Mitchell, hers for the taking, and it talks about her mental illness and her struggle with schizophrenia. Yeah, and our spirituality. In our, kind of our engagement with God, our mind is such an important part of that. It's not the whole of it by a long shot, but but it's important to it. And mental illness disables, and so and Alzheimer's disease is a form of mental illness too. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, like all mental illness has an organic uh, root to it. So they're, they're all they're all alike in that way. So yeah, the Virginia, I mean uh, Marilyn Mitchell, who I'd gone to high school with, uh, and she she had. She struggled with mental illness even then, and so now, you know, in her mid-60s, finally died from uh, a brain tumor. Um, for, for me, one among many ways in which our affirmation of life beyond death is important to Christian faith is that it, it, it's, uh, it's how we see that for her, the potential of who she is. I mean, believe me, she lived a brave and, and valuable life as it was as a person with mental illness. I mean, her life was not a waste. Yeah, even with her mental illness, um, but there's a potential in Marilyn that she wasn't able to realize in this mm-hmm. life, and that's hers for the taking. Now, that's the title of the, mm-hmm. of the, of the that sermon is hers for the taking. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, was writing your father's hard? We read a little bit of from that, but was yeah. it hard to put it together and do it? Well, you know, this was a, that, that that's it was in 1995 that he died. So that's the oldest sermon in the book, I think. Um, and um, his struggle with Alzheimer's disease was awful for me. I mean, it was like my hero was disintegrating uh, painfully in front of my eyes. So everything about that was agonizing for me. But his death felt like release to me. And I actually wrote his sermon literally at St. Timothy's Church in Alexandria, Louisiana. I went down there. He died. After we all got there and gathered, he died. And they had a vigil for him overnight. And so people could take turns. His body was in a casket in the church, in the sanctuary of the church. And people could sign up. Well, I'll do it from 8 to 9 and another one from 
nine to ten. That's an interesting thing to do. Yeah, and it might have been my suggestion. But anyway, I signed up for the whole graveyard shift from like midnight to six in the morning. Some big chunk in there. And I sat in there with this casket closed because we're Episcopalians and that's what we do. This casket was sitting there in front of me and I had a note paper and then I wrote that I wrote that sermon sitting there with his body in there in the middle of the night at church. That sounds awesome. You just don't I like that so much. All right. Your next one was your mother. An exacting woman of standards. She knows what she wants. And she wrote a memoir. Did you use any of it? Yeah, I started out with her description of meeting my father at a uh, at a dance at Mary Baldwin College. He came up from Washington and Lee. They both had dates with other people and caught, kind of caught each other's eye, and they had a dance, and that was the beginning. So did, your mother, did your mother remarry after your father died? Yeah. Oh, she, she did? She, met a, uh, she married Clark Winter, who was a wonderful man. Who oh, had, nice. Mother and dad had been married for more than 50 years, and Clark and his wife, Marjorie, had been married for more than 50 years, and they were both widowed. And uh, they met, uh, Clark had gone to Washington Lee, too, and they, uh, mother hadn't known him there. But they, they met at an alumni event. He called her up, and uh, they had 10 very, very happy years of marriage until he died. So, James, how did you pick James Schreiber in the power of the Spirit to be the last one? Well, uh, I had baptized J.J. as a child, and um, he died as a young man in his 20s. I think I wanted to end with baptism and uh, what, what it means for making our way through life into death with faith. And so I was able to start with his baptism and and end with it. His JJ's service at St. Margaret's in Little Rock was the last church service in person that I went to. And as far as I know, anybody else in Little Rock did before the shutdown. It, it was at that service. From COVID? It, the yeah, COVID it, shutdown? It, there were no services in churches in Arkansas the Sunday following that service. I think it was the day after... The day before the service, the first actual case of COVID in Arkansas had happened. When I was doing the book, that service was really fresh on my mind. Mm-hmm. Felt like a good ending. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should read your book that has suffered any kind of a loss because it really helps you think about the afterlife and the continuation. It just, I don't know, it's just, it's very, it, makes you, it makes you really at peace at the way things are. Let's take a quick break. More to come after the break. The book that Dr. Keller and Carrie McCoy have been talking about on today's program, Getting On Toward Home and Other Sermons by the River, is going to be featured as part of the 2021 Six Bridges Book Festival, which is going on now. This coming Tuesday, October 26th, Dr. Keller is going to give a reading, a discussion about the book, moderated by Dr. Neil Wyatt, hospice and palliative medicine specialist with CHI St. Vincent, and he'll also take questions and sign books. The event's free, and all are welcome. The Six Bridges Book Festival event featuring Chris Keller discussing his book, Getting On Toward Home and Other Sermons by the River, will be this coming Tuesday from noon till 1 o'clock at Trinity Cathedral in downtown Little Rock. Now back to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Christoph Keller III, author of the book, Getting On Toward Home, a collection of some of his funerals and homilies, 12 of them to be exact. Chris, you quote Thomas Aquinas a lot. Who is Thomas Aquinas? Well, he was a, a Christian theologian in the um, 13th century and who synthesized biblical faith with philosophy particularly the philosophy of Aristotle, which is um, exemplary for we should incorporate our, our, our capacity to reason with our trust and belief in God. According to him, people are in most respects the same as other creatures. What sets us apart is our power to think. We're like other creatures in that we have, he called them the, um, the vegetative, uh, aspects and the uh, animal aspects of being uh, a creature. Vegetative I means like plants, like cactuses and stuff. We have 
capacities to reproduce and defend ourselves and grow. Uh, and like other animals, we have all these passions. He, I think he identifies 11 different passions. And so even before Darwin knew that we were descended with other species from common origins, Aquinas recognized that human beings are part of the creation and made us the same stuff and that, uh, and for the most part. Um, but what's distinctive about being human is our capacity to think and then beyond that, also the fact that we are made in the image of God. But that part of it is known by faith. But just by, by reason and observation, we can know that we have the power to think. Life as an organism is a lot of work. <laughs> and we, you know, we have to get out there and earn it every day <laughs> just to get food in our bellies and, and all of that stuff. And it's, uh, it's rough. And so it's, it's not easy. It's, it's, you know, love is hard work. It love, is hard work. Yeah, love. I mean, we don't, we we don't appreciate the complexity of love. We, I mean, I think when we hear the word, we tend to think of a sentiment. Yes. Of you know, for somebody that we care about, and love is more than that. It's, I mean, it's like faith. There's three. Faith is tripartite. Uh, it's a belief uh, in the in the mind. I believe that something is true. Can't know that it is true. I might have reasons for believing it's true. I will have reasons for believing it's true. So it's not like I'm totally in the dark, but I can't see all the way to certainty. So it's, faith is that. But it's also a desire. It's uh, it's a desire for some, it's, 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 it's an emotional attachment. And it's a commitment. It's a choice. Well, all of that's true for love, too. So I love you, a person, when I believe that your good is as important as my own, when I desire it for you, and when I committed to act on it. So that's what love is. That, and that, that, it's, not, it's not just a sentiment. It's a lot, it's, there's sentiment in it. It's in that desire. Um, but, it's, but it's more than that, and it's, and it's really hard work. And, uh, and it, it's hard to separate it from faith because it, you, um, it's, uh, love becomes easier or more compelling anyway when it's, when it, when it, when it's part of a faith that, 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 that has those same things directed towards God and, and where God is uh, kind of brought into our life to help us with it. Mm-hmm. Carl. Barth, another serious theologian, theologian, you quote a lot. He describes his craft as, I thought this was interesting, the most beautiful of all sciences. He said you know, about how people come to faith, he says, God doesn't convince us to believe in him by himself by arguments. He persuades us by giving us joy and gives us joy by being beautiful. So tra- faith is drawn to the beauty of God that's the kind of the, the, the emotional, I mean, you know, to make it concrete, I mean, just in the New Testament, when Jesus just walking through a crowd, a woman is healed uh, because she touches his cloak. She'd been painfully ill for 20 years. And the Bible pictures moments like that as instances of the kingdom of God becoming visible on earth. And what the reaction is heartbreaking joy on the part of the people who's have been healed or forgiven or something like that. that that's, so it's, there's a piece in us that is ready emotionally to respond to that when we see it uh, or know it. I mean, and a lot of times in church it happens through music. On that note, let's take our last break. We'll be back. The book that Dr. Keller and Carrie McCoy have been talking about on today's program, Getting On Toward Home and other sermons by the river, is going to be featured as part of the 2021 Six Bridges Book Festival, which is going on now. This coming Tuesday, October 26th, Dr. Keller is going to give a reading, a discussion about the book, moderated by Dr. Neil Wyatt, hospice and palliative medicine specialist with CHI St. Vincent, and he'll also take questions and sign books. The event's free, and all are welcome The Six Bridges Book Festival event featuring Chris Keller discussing his book, Getting On Toward Home and Other Sermons by the River, will be this coming Tuesday from noon till 1 o'clock at Trinity Cathedral in downtown Little Rock.
You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Christoph Keller III. So how much time do you give to prayer and meditation a day? Because you have to deal with a lot of grief. I know you get to deal with births, and I know you get to deal with celebrations, but there's a lot of grief you have to deal with. How much do you have to meditate every day? Early in my ministry, I did do that, but my practice changed. I'm more now just a, a kind of an old-fashioned prayer book Episcopalian. I say the daily morning prayer every day from the prayer book. I actually pray more now that I'm retired because I have more time to pray. And then I, I come back to it when I exercise, either in the swimming pool or on a walk. I kind of I'll do it all over again. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's got to be a bigger part of my life. Anyone who has lost a loved one would enjoy your book. So where do we get your book? You will be able to get it at Wordsworth. On uh, our street in Little Rock. And uh, there's going to be an event at the Trinity Cathedral. Part of the, It's part of the Six Bridges Literary Festival. I'm um, going to be interviewed by Dr. Neil Wyatt, who works with Arkansas Hospice. He's going to be the moderator of a panel. And uh, you can, and we'll talk about the book. And you can buy the book there, and I'll be sign delighted it. to sign it for you. And that is on Tuesday at noon. Uh, do we have a gift for? It's in the other room then. Oh! oh. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Chris, have I ever given you one of these before? Well, you've given me one before, but I think it only had the Arkansas and the American flag. Well, this one's got this New York. So Go. this is a desk set with New York, mm-hmm. the Christian flag, the Arkansas flag. Where were you born? Were you Arkansas. born in Arkansas? Yeah. But you went to school in. Mississippi? Well, I was born in El Dorado, moved to Harrison, and then to Jackson, Mississippi, and then back to Little Rock. Okay. I love having these Christian. I know, don't you, though? Desk set. Thanks for coming on. You know I love visiting with you so much. This has been an absolute joy. In closing, I'd like to say to our listeners, thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and that whatever it is will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guests. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.